Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Um, I see a couple new faces, and so I think it's uh, important for you to know that here at Calvary we have the conviction of teaching the Scriptures as they were given to us. Uh, the Holy Spirit gave us the Scriptures book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so that's, that's how we teach it here. Currently, uh, we're in the book of Galatians chapter 5. And uh, we're in the context of the flesh versus the spirit, uh, walking in the spirit so that we do not fulfill the lust of our flesh. So, it is our custom here that when we read the scriptures, we stand together. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version from Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and um, Lord, grateful for your word, and it is the truth, as Jesus says in John 17. And not only is it the truth, it's the sanctifying truth. It washes us. It, it prepares us, Lord, to stand before you. And we need it to prepare for the judgment day. And Lord, we, all who love you, they, they look forward to it, Lord. We're living for the day that we stand before you. And um, so I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to inform us, to warn us, and to draw us close to you. So Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. If you would return to verse 19, verse 19, Paul begins by saying, now the works of the flesh are, and then he lists them through verse 21. So the works of the flesh, Paul is no longer talking about the lust of the flesh, which we all experience in ourselves, and we're the victim of it with others. Here he's talking about the behavior of the flesh, not what it wants, but what it does. And the flesh, of course, is the sin nature that dwells and is active in each of us. You know, if the flesh were unrestrained by consequences, if it went unrestricted by the Holy Spirit, the, the flesh would behave in all the ways that Paul describes here and in many other ways, in many other ways. Uh, these are the things the flesh longs for, and when given the opportunity, the flesh will obtain its desires. And then Paul says that the, the, the works of the flesh are evident. Of course, they're always evident in others, uh, not evident to ourselves. But Paul is saying that, that they're obvious. They're obvious. When we look into the world, we look at others, we watch the news, and those sorts of things. One philosopher said that the most obvious fact of humanity is our sinful depravity. That was a Christian philosopher. Uh, as I told first service, I listened to a secular psychologist who almost said precisely the same thing. Uh, he would be the first. I've ever heard in the secular field say that. But because it's obvious, it can be seen. Man is dreadfully broken 
And so what man is like in an unrestrained environment is really a nightmare. It's, it's, it's terrible to think about. But the nightmare itself, as we know, has been manifested in reality time and time again. And recently, recently, um, you know, to think that World War II and the Holocaust were less than 100 years ago is a sobering reality, isn't it? That millions were killed, millions gave their lives. Even more frightening is the death toll that occurred clear into the 70s with Mao Zedong in communist China, who they're still trying to figure out how many deaths he's responsible for. So far, they're estimating between 60 and 80 million people. 60 and 80 million. More recent is what they've called the Hidden Holocaust in Sudan, where over 6 million Sudanese were murdered. We have Uganda, and then more recently, if you've seen what's going on in Nigeria, the killings, the kidnappings, and so forth. The number of abortions in the world is untraceable. America alone has contributed nearly 70 million people, deaths of babies, murders. Human trafficking is growing around the world. It's, it's basically been under our nose in the West, but it's here, it's alive, it's thriving. Uh, with Seattle is number one in human trafficking and Portland is number two. And we are Centralia. We're on the freeway, halfway between the two of them. And we have children. Hundreds of children have been rescued in America in the last year from the sex trade, which is great. But around the world, there are hundreds of thousands of children that are in the sex trade. Sex crimes are on the rise. It's being sanctioned by entire governments around the world. Adultery is commonplace. Uh, all forms of sexual morality, more globally so, are encouraged. Uh, STDs are skyrocketing. Um, I think that they're staggering uh, just in the state of Washington. There's been an exponential increase in the last few years. Idolatry and paganism. Uh, we always think of paganism as something that is more covert and behind the scenes. Uh, it is becoming prominent. It's in our face. Hatred in America right now is considered a virtue, and selfish ambition rules the day. Drug abuse and addiction is completely out of control in the West, and fewer and few people care that it's happening. Our youth detention facilities are full of children who have been ripped off by the world, and the culture is actively hunting our children to indoctrinate them in what we call secularism. Now, I know that among Christians, we use that term to talk about our job. We have a secular job. It's actually not true. As a Christian, you have a sanctified job because you belong to Christ. Uh, the sanctity of living is just a part of your existence because of who you are, your identity. Uh, the word secularism has to do with uh, what is of this world. And what is of this world is, is controlled by Satan. It's manipulated by him. It's orchestrated. And... Uh, so you definitely don't want a secular job, amen? Yeah, cultures hunting our children, indoctrinating them, and if they succeed, what it will do is help them cast off what is left of moral restraint. The works of the flesh are not just evident in our culture, it's aggressively pushing them through our schools, the music industry, Hollywood, and social media. But I think it's important for us as the people of Christ to recognize that the works of the flesh are also the desires of our flesh of us. It's not just something true of those who are out there. It's indicative of us in here. And it's only by the Spirit of God that our flesh is kept in check. Have you noticed? Yeah. 
And so I, every work of the flesh, I believe, is worth addressing, uh, not simply because Paul took the time to record them for us, but because of what Paul says. He says, everyone who practices them without repentance and faith in Christ will go to hell forever. They'll never come back. Those who practice such things, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, as, as, that is the nicest way that Paul could have said that. Jesus said it another way. He said, the unrighteous will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 25, 46. They will be confined to a place for all eternity where Jesus says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think that as our culture advances, even on the church, the most startling thing for the people of the West will be the judgment of God. What do you mean? What do you mean I'm being judged? I was such a good person. And compared to what? It'll be startling. And it is, uh, it's my responsibility to talk about it. Paul said that his duty as a minister of the gospel and the duty that he passes on to pastors, he says that it is Christ that we preach and we're warning every man, we're teaching every man that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We're trying to assist people getting ready for the judgment, Colossians 1.28. So these realities around us and in us We shouldn't be afraid to address it. We should confront it. We should be honest about it. The works of the flesh are deadly. And without repentance and faith, the consequences are eternal. Now, the list that Paul gives here, it's not exhaustive by any means, but it's inclusive enough to get the ball rolling. It's enough to make his point. Amen? It's enough. Also, the works of the flesh listed here do not and have not been manifested in each of us. Aren't you glad? Not all of them have been manifested in each of us. Each of us have the potential, perhaps, to commit any of these things, but not all of us have. Now, if you've read diaries and other things from the Holocaust, uh, you've read stories of people who uh, did things that they could not believe that they did when they got caught up in what was happening to the Jews. And um, it's because we're, we have that potential in our sin nature to do the worst of things. If, um, if all of us had manifested all of the works of the flesh, um, I don't think that humanity would exist anymore because the, the works of the flesh are just so destructive. So this morning, I'd like to define each of these works uh, of the flesh and uh, the potential consequences and the possibility of being forgiven for them. Okay? Uh, and in the process, I don't want to sound like a Greek lexicon to you. Uh, I'll try to make it as interesting and applicable as possible. So at least pretend like you're paying attention, okay? Paul begins with sexual sins, beginning with adultery, adultery. Now, it's been said that adultery is the sexual sin of those who are married, and Jesus gives an example of that in Matthew 19, 6, but the definition is actually uh, too narrow. Uh, In Matthew 19, Jesus gives one definition for adultery, where if a man divorces his wife unlawfully, that is, apart from sexual morality, and then marries another person, then he commits adultery. In in this definition, adultery is committed through remarriage, not sex. But then in John 8, the Pharisees caught a woman who was in the very act of adultery, meaning she was caught having sex with someone other than her spouse. She hadn't remarried, but she was just involved with someone she should not have been, and that was adultery. And then as Jesus typically can put a spin on things, he gives another definition for adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, 
saying that adultery is also a sin of the heart, a sin of the mind, whether you're married or not, Matthew 5, 28, and not to overlook 2 Peter 2, 14. Jesus says that to look with lust is to commit adultery in the heart. That's Matthew 5, 28. And uh, I think what we do here in the West is we confuse adultery in the heart with viewing pornography. Now, that's true, but uh, you can probably guess why Jesus did not have pornography in mind in the first century AD, right? There were no videographers. There's no photography. So Jesus didn't have that in mind, at least in the historical context. Of course, in his foreknowledge, he knew that that would become a thing and a serious problem. So pornography would actually be the most extreme version of adultery in the heart. But Jesus was simply talking about looking at someone with lust, with the desire to have sex with them. Of course, he means someone who is not your spouse. You can look at your spouse like that all that you want. Um, I think 1 Corinthians 7 actually encourages it. So whether you lust after someone who is fully clothed or completely naked, it makes no difference to God. Okay, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're guilty of it. So what are the consequences for adultery, especially when it concerns sex with someone who's not your spouse? Now, it is interesting that the, the consequences for it has changed over history. In the Old Testament, it was execution. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 but in the New Covenant, its divorce is a potential consequence. It's not required to divorce your spouse who has fornicated, but it's potential. But without repentance, it is excommunication from the fellowship of the church, Matthew 19.9 and other places. And of course, as Paul says here, it is exclusion from the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6.9, and here in our passage. But it is important to say that Adultery is forgivable, right? It's forgivable for the repentant sinner. And, you know, I, I've been around long enough. I, I still think that 44 years is not very long um, compared to some. To know that those who have committed adultery and genuinely repented, that God has forgiven them, but the church has not. I think it's blasphemous that if God would forgive, do you not think that his church should follow suit? I believe so. I believe so. Now, if I, we could talk about marriage and divorce and, and remarriage for the rest of the day, actually, from the scriptures. Um, that's not my objective today. Uh, if you have questions about that, you can ask me. Um, or you could go to when I taught on the subject in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 10 through 16. And the, the, my discussion there is quite exhaustive through the scriptures. And... Um, but if you would rather chat, I would love to have that conversation with you. But the point of all this that Paul is making, and it's made throughout the scriptures, is that marriage is sacred to God, and it should never be tampered with, okay? Never be tampered with. Jesus says, what God has brought together, let not man separate, okay? So there's adultery, and then there's fornication. Fornication is any kind of sexual activity with someone you should not be having sex with, Okay. The only person we should be having sex with is the person we are rightly married to. Rightly married to. So even when a married person engages in sex outside of marriage, it is fornication. Um, people say, no, that's adultery. Well, actually, in Matthew 19, Jesus calls it fornication. Okay. Uh, fornication uh, is translated as sexual immorality. Okay. And 
If we are not married to someone in the way that God defines marriage, we should not be having sex with them either. Now, the reason that that has to be said is because here in the West, marriage continues to be redefined and more so so that it can include anything that, that America wants or really the Western world, but God invented marriage. And so he has the exclusive right to define it, to govern it, and to establish consequences for any violation of it. And so by his design and his will, marriage is between one biological male and one biological female who are in a covenant relationship with each other. Now that narrows things down, and and so therefore same-sex marriage really is contrary to the design and will of God, and so what they engage in is fornication. Now, at the time of Christ, the word fornication had such a broad meaning, it was really used to describe just about any kind of sexual activity outside of God's design for marriage as it's prescribed in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Uh, If you were here for the conference, Alan Schlemann did a fantastic job of uh, discussing the issues uh, biblically regarding sex, even uh, what we would call teleologically regarding God's design of the human body and things. Now, if Paul, uh, strangely enough, if Paul were to address every form of sexual immorality within the Greek and Roman culture, uh, I mean, just imagine how long chapter 5 of Galatians would be. Uh, the Greeks were depraved in their sexual behavior. We don't need a list that long. Uh, Paul says in verse 21, he says, all of these works of the flesh, and he says, and the like, and the like. And so if you define the biblical context for sex, you don't have to name every kind of wrong sex. You understand? It narrows it down. Now, the big question currently in the West is, would the word fornication include homosexuality? The answer is yes. And even if it did not, it is covered in Leviticus 18, in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Okay. And the consequences for fornication are essentially the same for adultery. They fit into the same category in Leviticus 18. And the same thing in the New Covenant in regard to adultery, where it's unrepented of. There's excommunication from the fellowship of God's people. And we see an example of that, a real one, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But what is beautiful is in 2 Corinthians, the man who is guilty of it is forgiven. He's restored through repentance, and things are good. Yeah. But without repentance... Paul says that the consequences are eternal. We need repentance. So again, sex, like marriage, is sacred to God and it should not be, should not be tampered with. Next is uncleanness. I actually forgot to mention, if you have a different translation than me, some of these Greek words are translated into English a little different, but in the end they mean the same thing. Uncleanness, the word was used to describe what was sexually perverse, what was utterly shameful, Uh, Paul used the word to describe that which was opposite of holy, holy in the absolute sense. And so what what is unclean in that context would be unclean in the absolute sense because holiness was placed in the absolute sense. In Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, where Paul is expanding on the depravity of the Gentile world, he uses the word in the context of homosexuality. So there it's in the sense of abnormal sex, what is gross in sexuality. Again, fits into Leviticus 18, which would incur the wrath of God. And those who remain in the behavior without repentance, now we would disfellowship 
them from the church as commanded by Christ. And the eternal consequences do not change, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Now, I think as sexual sin just continues to thrive and increase in our culture, that it's necessary for us to always remember that our mission as Christians is to a culture that is trapped in that, that is, our culture is messy, right? And it's these kinds of people that Christ came and died. He suffered to deliver and save those who are sexually impure. But then there's lewdness. To be lewd is to ignore all moral boundaries regarding sex. A lewd person has no moral restraint. They are shameless in their conduct. This is the person who enjoys flaunting their filth. Um, You can find that on TikTok. You can find it in Hollywood, the music industry. It's everywhere celebrated and available. I'm not encouraging you to go find it. Um, I'm just saying that it's there. The things they do, as Paul would said, uh, they're not, I, I would prefer not to mention them. That's how lewd it is. Idolatry. Now, in the West, we think that we are somehow um, safe from idolatry. We're certainly not idolaters because uh, we don't bow down to statues and burn incense and candles to them. Whatever. We're some of the biggest idolaters in the planet, on the planet. Okay, it's alive and well in the West. So what does modern idolatry look like? Um, when I think of idolatry today, I think of ideologies. I come to, I, I think of political parties, uh, even some versions of patriotism. Uh, there's plenty of Americans who consider the Constitution to be the 67th book of the Bible. You've probably met them. It, it consists of two chapters, the First and the Second Amendment. The land of America is the new promised land with whom God is preoccupied, and the political left are the new Philistines that we must exterminate. There are too many Christians who elevate their political position above the mandates of Scripture. And listen, it reduces their Christian witness to ashes to ashes. Too many believers spend more time being discipled by Fox News and political commentators than they do by Peter, James, and John, and the Apostle Paul. You guys, that's idolatry with political leaders and conservative commentators as the high priests and the prophets of the religion. Beware of it. I'm not telling you to not be involved. I think you must, according to James chapter 2, according to Proverbs. There are people hurting because of the political things that go on because of current legislation, you should be involved. You have a moral obligation. But be careful. Do not ruin your witness. We can't forget that we're, as the scriptures say, we're resident aliens. We're sojourners, and we have a work visa. We're basically migrant workers who sow the seed of gospel truth in a godless land, no matter where we find ourselves on planet Earth. We are Christians way before we are Americans. Is that true? When we move on from here, Will you give a second thought to America? You are a citizen of Jerusalem above, okay? We want to minister here for sure. We're commissioned to do that. But let's be careful with our commission. Getting people to cross over political lines is not our commission. It's preaching the gospel. In the the terms of idolatry, comfort also comes to mind. You know, comfortable doing nothing for Christ. Comfortable not contributing to the fellowship of God's people. Comfortable not participating in Christ's commission. Comfortable paying missionaries to spread the gospel for us. Comfortable having someone else do what we should be doing. Comfortable not being uncomfortable. Our affection for comfort exceeds our convictions for Christ. And so the doctrines of denying ourselves 
and taking up our cross daily to follow Christ is ignored because we can't enjoy our comfort and deny ourselves at the same time. Now, when Jesus said, anyone who wants to follow after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. I'm, I'm only trying to be direct with those to whom it applies. The rest of you can take your ease. Just ignore what brings you discomfort. Let nothing disrupt your convenience. Idolatry is more prevalent among us than we think. It is anything that we give greater priority to, loyalty to, than we do to God in his written word. Either Christ is preeminent or he is not. That's a fact. Nothing should have anything before him. Let us constantly examine ourselves in light of the gospel and the truth of scripture. Our flesh is prone to idolatry. What about sorcery? How many of you guys in the room were ever a sorcerer? Okay, all right. The Greek word is pharmakia, and the best translation really is sorcery or witchcraft. Uh, If you've been on YouTube lately, you've probably heard some pastors or YouTubers really uh, screw up the historical context of this word, uh, not really understanding what it means in that historical context. Our word for pharmacy comes from the word, but listen, there is no relationship between a pharmacist today and a witch of Paul's day. Okay, we let John Wiley off the hook last service for being a pharmacist. No relationship between the two. Paul uses the term in the context of the occult. It's, it's medicine men, it's witch doctors, and he doesn't necessarily have drugs in mind here. He may, okay? Those who engaged in sorcery, they worked their spells, they worked their incantations, and sometimes it was uh, with the use of various drugs. Uh, some of these sorcerers were uh, used to kill people. Uh, Socrates was killed with hemlock. And hemlock is, water hemlock is the most poisonous plant on earth. It's deadly stuff. Uh, that's how Socrates was murdered. The, the great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says that Professional faith healers would be a good modern match to the sorcerers of Paul's day. I like that very much because I can't stand these so-called healers, these charlatans who deceive God's people. So the occult, that's what this is all about. It belongs to Satan and everything about it is opposed to God. And that is the very reason that our flesh is drawn to it. Our flesh is in opposition to God. There's also hatred, Paul says. This word refers to the opposite of love. It's probably the strongest word used in the New Testament for hate. It's often translated to enmity. Uh, That's a deep-rooted hatred. Uh, The Greek word differs from those found elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, like in Matthew 6, 24, uh, Luke 14, and and, uh, Romans chapter 9. Jesus says, unless you hate father and mother, for me, basically, he's not saying hate them, he's saying love them less. Aren't you thankful? Also, in uh, Romans chapter 9, We have the the quotation there that God hated Esau and loved Jacob. It's love less there, okay? It's not there the opposite of love. But hatred right now, I just can't believe how in vogue it is and how justified it is, depending on where you lie in your beliefs. Contentions or strife. Uh, We've had these people in our church, uh, and according to Paul, According to Jesus, when they don't repent, we, we move them along. Okay, we don't need them here. Uh, you've had them in your lives uh, on holidays. You have them in your families. Uh, I'm sure you've got one of those around. Do you? <laughs> 
Now, contentions are started by those who cannot stand it when their position, their perspective, or opinion goes overlooked or dismissed. Uh, They will be heard at all costs. These are the people who always look for points to disagree on. They, they, They capitalize on microscopic errors in people. They point out the slightest flaws in ministries. They nitpick everything to death. This is the person who cannot rest until they find something to disagree with. And the reason that is, is because harmony to them is painful. Peace is not exciting enough. They, they, they need drama. They must have something to divide over. And so we move them along so they can find someone else and some other place to divide. Okay? Paul says the divisive person gets two strikes and they're gone. They're gone. Jealousies. We've never been jealous uh, this is the ungodly feeling when you, that you get when someone has something or gets what you think you should have, whether it be possession or praise or benefit. The good that someone else experiences troubles you. It irks you. That's jealousy. I've known jealous people that can't sleep at night because they're so pained by what someone else is enjoying. They can't stand how unfair things are. Outbursts of wrath. The Greek word speaks of explosive violent anger and rage. It shouldn't be confused with raising your voice or yelling. That's another thing. An outburst of wrath can be done without uttering a word or making a sound. Now, in the context of the words that precede it, wrath is often the fruit of hatred. It's the fruit of contentions and jealousies. We see this in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was jealous of Abel, and his jealousy was manifested in rage and ultimately murder. Selfish ambitions. We, we have no experience with this at all. <laughs> Selfish intent. It gets Romans 8 backwards. It's, it's me working all things together for good for myself. In the end, always. This is the person who will get involved even in benevolent activities like charities when there's something in it for them. When they can cash in on something. In, in everything they do, they conjure the inner Pharisee. <laughs> making certain they're seen doing good things, something noble, so they can enjoy recognition. These people are unbearable. Amen? They're unbearable. Uh, One of my favorite commentators in the Bible, he says that pastors are among those who are most guilty, especially pastors who are very eloquent and charismatic in the pulpit. They know they nailed it. So what they do is they go out into the foyer, and they don't actually engage directly with anyone. They just eavesdrop and listen in on people talking well about him in his sermon. He calls it harvesting praise among the people. It's despicable. They're not motivated by the love of others, but by the love of self. And you know, all of us have this in us. Our sin nature thrives on selfish ambition. And without the Spirit of God, you guys, it's messy. Dissensions, this is similar to strife. uh, But this word speaks of those who create factions within the church, and they pit people against one another in order to cause division. Not only are they the ones that see the microscopic errors, they help other people see the little faults in others. They help others become or gain a sense that they can't tolerate the differences around them. They help people complain about minor things. These are the people that cause church splits. Perhaps you've known them. Okay? And I have known some who are so cunning that nobody knows about their involvement until all the damage is done and reconciliation is nearly impossible. And when they're finally confronted, they say, who, me? Oh, what I did was totally righteous and justifiable. They're evil. And then there's heresies. 
The person, this person rather, is the one who spreads false teaching. He has taken a position contrary to the truth of Scripture, and then they feel like they've been commissioned by God to sow this false doctrine among the people and then and disrupt the fellowship. And if you've ever met a heretic that kind of mingles with the body, they politely look down on the rest of us because we're not as spiritual, we're not as intelligent as they are. And then with their enlightened position, they begin to cause problems in the fellowship. Listen, no spiritual person is divisive. No spiritual person is divisive. Uh, Just like divisive people, Paul gives heretics two strikes and they must be removed from the fellowship. Envy, uh, envy and jealousy, uh, I've, I've found them being interchangeable in the scriptures a couple times. Uh, jealousy is probably the worst of the two. And envy is probably listed here because somebody is going to say, I'm not jealous, I'm just envious. And Paul says the end result is identical. No one is off the hook. Murders, I hope that that's pretty self-evident. Um, we don't fellowship with people that murder. Uh, and if we catch someone that's a murderer, we will quickly turn you over to the authorities to be subject to the wrath of the king. Okay. And that goes for other criminals as well, because this one isn't just immoral and evil, it's illegal. Okay, drunkenness. I've waited all day to talk to you guys about drunkenness. <laughs> if, I was, if, if I knew you were a drunkard, I'd talk to you by yourself. By the way, Matthew chapter 18. I got to follow the rules too. Now, drunkenness, this shouldn't be confused with the moderate consumption of alcohol, which is actually found throughout the scriptures. Now, what's interesting is that God had the Jews purchase whatever their hearts desired for the feasts of the Lord, including wine and similar drink, that they might rejoice in his presence. That's Deuteronomy 14.26. I can't change the text. Wine was said to be among God's blessings, according to him, Deuteronomy 7.14, and the lack of wine was a curse of God for disobedience, Deuteronomy 28.28. But drunkenness is forbidden because it weakens moral restraint. It hinders self-control. It diminishes rational thinking. It removes our better judgment, and it frequently makes a proper idiot out of people. My favorite section of scripture on this is Proverbs 23. 30 through 35, about a man who got so drunk that when somebody hit him, he didn't know it. Ephesians 5.18 talks about it. And we know of plenty of families that have been destroyed because of alcoholism. Now, I I realize that the whole issue of drinking alcohol among Christians can be very contentious. Um, Calvary Chapel is made up of people of just about every tradition there is in evangelicalism, okay? And uh, it can be contentious because your tradition or because of the experience that you've had with it personally or with a family member, okay? I understand that, but as a Bible teacher, I must be very careful to say what the scriptures say about it. Understand something. I can't condemn what God permits, and I cannot permit what God condemns. I do not have the authority to call something sin, which God does not call sin. My responsibility is to teach the parameters set by God in his word, And so with that said, the Holy Spirit condemns drunkenness. And those who drink unto drunkenness without repentance, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So if I were you, I'd be very careful with how you define moderation. Do you get it? And if you're the one currently drinking, I would warn you, you are not qualified to define moderation. I'm not certain who is other than the Holy Spirit. 
It's not my job, I guess, to say what the scriptures doesn't say clearly, but you need to use godly wisdom. You need to use restraint. Probably should check your motive for why you drink. Amen? Yeah, be careful. If you're not careful, you're an idiot, honestly, because your soul is in jeopardy if you're a drunkard. That's what the text says. Revelries. The ESV and the NIV have it as orgies. NASB has carousing. It essentially means to participate in drunken parties where you know, alcohol is energizing just about everything. Um, you guys get it. Finally, Paul says, and the like, and the like. What do you mean, Paul? He means that he didn't have enough paper and ink. That's what he means. He's running out. I don't have time for this. You guys get it. It's too difficult, especially today, I believe, with TikTok and social media to keep track of all the evil, thing, evil things that we invent Paul says to Timothy, there will be inventors of evil things. Prophecy fulfilled, the West. So the like is any conduct that is contrary to the will of God and his character. To which Paul concludes, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 21. Now the word in that verse that has to be emphasized is the word practice. Practice. Those who live according to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who have the works of the flesh as a lifestyle and never repent and trust in Christ, those are the ones that will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Daniel says, if you die in your sin, that you'll wake up to everlasting contempt and shame. Daniel 12, 2. John says that you'll be raised on the last day to face a holy God who will judge you according to what is right by your deeds. Revelation 20 11 through 15, you will face God and he will give you justice, justice. Paul said to the the most intellectual group in all of the Roman Empire, he said, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he'll judge the world according to what is right. And he has made this certain by the man that he has ordained by raising him from the dead, the risen Christ will judge humanity because Christ became a man and died for all of humanity. He will be the judge. But I would say to you that if you have air in your lungs, you're still within the reach of God's redeeming grace. You can still cast off the works of the flesh. You can still be saved. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, which was by far the most immoral church that he wrote to, disgusting the things that they got into, I want you to listen carefully to what he said to them. He said, do you not know, it's shameful that you'd have to even ask a church that or say that to a church. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know, just in terms of fornication, Rahab the harlot was a professional fornicator, and she was incorporated into the covenant of God. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, she celebrated as a woman of faith. There is forgiveness, of which were some of you. Christ redeems, as Hebrews says, to the uttermost. Do not delay. The Son of God was given on the cross for you. He bore your punishment. 
He shed his blood to wash you clean. Today is the day to repent and be reconciled to God. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Father, I said it. And now we trust, Lord, that you will do it. That those who need to repent, who need to come to faith, that you would work in their hearts. Lord, that you would do for them what none of us can do for them. They would come to you in repentance. They'd trust you for salvation. Lord, they'd take up their cross and follow you. And Lord, I also pray for any professed believer. Paul said that anybody who names the name of Christ must depart from iniquity. I pray, Lord, for them that you would convict them of their sin and that you would recover them, that you'd restore them to true fellowship with your people. Lord, they would enjoy their salvation. So Lord, just grant grace, I pray. Lord, I thank you for my church, and um, I just pray you'd love on them, that day by day you'd reveal yourself more to them, and they'd trust your spirit, Lord, so that they might be useful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.